Today we are finishing up our discussion on having perfect relationships. And let me ask you this. When we first saw that we were doing a series on the having perfect relationships, how many of you just kind of chuckled at the idea? I laughed at the idea of perfect relationships. <laughs> yeah, I've never experienced that before. I wonder what that would feel like. I wonder what that would be like. Uh, not many of us, any of us, have ever had perfect relationships. Now, certainly there are moments where we enact the rule that makes our relationships perfect. But on the grand scale of things, none of us have perfect relationships. They're not perfect with our kids, they're not perfect with our spouses, they're not perfect with our neighbors, and the reason that they are not perfect is because we are selfish. We are selfish people. We are black holes that take and suck and consume and use and abuse and coerce and manipulate each other. Merry Christmas, friends. Thanks for being here today. We are people who hurt one another. We are people who determine the, each other's value by the value that, that they bring to us. And we consider that, man, you know what? You are only good to me if you are good for me. And I will use you, and I will abuse you, and I will objectify you. And if you are good for me, then perhaps I will give you some attention. But otherwise, get out of my way, because i got places to go, and i got things to do. This is the human condition. We often, I think, function more like animals than we do humans, don't we? No, 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 not here at Restoration Church, Ross. No, 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 we're the, we're the good ones. We're the good ones. The tragedy, I think, as I've, as I've um, reflected on, the tragedy, I think, is as I've reflected on this series, as I've studied more about this one rule that would acquire us perfect relationships if we could only, if we only live it out, the tragedy is that the further I run down the rabbit hole of love, the more I realize how true of this is. And it's sad. And it's a hard truth that I need to come to terms with. But this is not how we were designed. This is not how God created us. This is not how God intended us. We are not wired to function this way. We are created in the image of a right-relating God who is three persons and one being bound together in the unifying agape love, self-sacrificing, other-oriented, deferring kind of love. My friends, we are most human when we love. You guys get that? Not when we live out of this mentality. We are most human when we love. But of course, in our culture, in our day and age, love is essentially a meaningless term. It is so deluded that it's, uh, I think, honestly become more confusing than it has become helpful. It, it means so many things that it fails to mean anything in our society. So when Jesus says, and he gives, you know, his, his if you forget everything that I've ever taught you, then remember this speech at the very end of his life. He says this, my command to you, is this, love each other, not as the world loves you, not as culture tells you that you ought to love. Don't just tolerate each other. Don't just put up with each other. Don't define love by the way others have treated you. Don't define love by the standard of Hollywood and how they define love. No, love each other as I, because I, Jesus would say, am the image of God. I am the model of humanity. I am the right humanity. I am the model that you are to follow, but I am also the empowerer of your life and the empowerer of your love. And so love each other as I have loved you. Now the disciples listening to this that night, they they had some idea of what Jesus was talking about because they had lived with him for three years at this point. But that very night, as he was going to be dragged away and hung upon a cross and then three days later rise from the dead, that night they were going to get a new definition, an exemplified definition of what he meant by this. And it was going to blow them away. The love that we are to have for one another, they would understand, this very night is self-sacrificial. 
It's deferring. It's the dying kind of love. It's a love that puts you above me. It's a love that takes whatever power and resources I have, and I use them for your good and for your betterment and for your advancement. It's a love that steps into the gap and carries each other's burdens. It's a love that values you above me. It's a love that lives and breathes and proves this then in word and also in deed. This command, this law, this rule is the one rule to having perfect relationships because it, is, because it is how we were designed and created and wired to live as humans upon this planet. My friends, the one rule to having perfect relationships, if we could follow it, is this. Love one another the same way that God through Jesus has loved us. This isn't based on a feeling. It is based on a choice. It's not super emotive or spiritual. It's hands-on and it's dirty. This is every day, every hour, every minute. I make the choice to surrender and to give of myself and to die to my selfish ambition and to ask God to empower my love towards the one beside me. Now, the Apostle Paul comes around and he unpacks this for us. He, he unpacks this one rule and gives us some detail about how God loves us and challenges then us to do the same. These descriptions, they're not exhaustive because Paul understood that love, God's love especially, was a mystery beyond our comprehension. That the, the well of God's love is unimaginably deep, but he wants us to explore it and get down to the nitty-gritty of it and figure out what it might look like to love our neighbor as God has loved us. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he gives us a helpful place to start. Again, it's not an exhaustive list of everything that God's love looks like, but it's a helpful place to start. I'm going to quickly recap what we discussed last week before we jump into the details of what he continues. Here's how he began. He says, love is patient. Love chooses to go at another person's pace. It does not demand that you accommodate to my pace. No, love accommodates to your pace. Because this is how God interacted with us. God accommodated to us. He chose to go at our pace, to bend to us, to speak our language, to become man so that we could know him and have access to him. And if this is how God chose to interact with us, my friends, we then ought to interact with one another in the same way. He continues, love is kind. Love does not continually remind others of their weaknesses, but rather love loans them our strength. Again, just like God did for us. He continues, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love allows the other person to shine. It doesn't have to step into the spotlight and steal somebody else's 15 minutes of fame. It does not get envious or jealous about how other people are standing and being celebrated. It lets other people shine. It lets other people get celebrated. It lets other people get the credit and lets other people get the attention. Because after all, even Jesus did not come into the world to be served, to stand in the spotlight. No, he came as a servant. He came to die so that he would give his life as a ransom for many. Love also, he says, does not dishonor others. See, love elevates other people. It lifts them up to the level of their humanity rather than strips them down and objectifies them. It treats other people as if they are actually more important than me. Now, here's the thing. They're not more important than me, but it treats everyone as if they are more important than me. And we should do the same because this is how God treated us. He sent Jesus to pay for not our good behavior, but our sin, right? And in that moment, God put us ahead of him, and we as followers of Jesus are to put others ahead of ourselves. Not because they're better, not because they deserve it, simply because this is what God treated us. This is what God did for us. And so now we're going to pick up where we left off. He continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is not self-seeking. Now, we don't use this terminology very often. We would rather say love is not 
selfish, right? It puts the interests and the needs of other people ahead of itself. What are you interested in? Oh, we want to do what you're interested in? No, we don't have to do what I'm interested in. Let's do what you're interested in. Oh, yeah, I've been waiting 37 years to see how the Skywalker saga concludes. Yeah, but you know what? We don't need to see that movie. We can go see the chick flick. That's fine because love is not self-seeking. Love puts the needs of others above themselves. Love does defer to the interests and the wants of others. What do you delight in? What interests you? Let us go then and do that. It puts you first. Now here's the thing. If we could do this and do it well, my friends, this would solve 99% of all of your relational problems. Do you guys get that? Because at the very heart of all of our relational problems, the implicit in all of our relational problems is a selfish, self-seeking, self-reigning mentality and if we decided to put the other person first, there would be no relationship problem except, now, you know, we did it my way last time. Why don't we do it your way this time? No, 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 no. Let's do it your way this time. No, no, you know what? Really, I, I must. I must defer. You need to go, no, 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 no. It's really, it's your turn. And wouldn't that be nice instead of the bickering and the resentment that often we find in our households? That would be a good problem to have. Think about it. When two people are arguing, they both really want the same thing. They both want their way. So whenever you're in an argument, you should simply stop and say, do you know what the problem is here? I'm not getting what I want. And the other person, if they had any self-awareness, would say, yeah, you know what? That is the problem. I'm not getting what I want either. But do you know what that does if you can recognize that you're not getting what you want and she or he's not getting what they want? It gives you margin to stop and to breathe and say, you know what? Am I being self-seeking? Are they being self-seeking? It allows you a margin to stop and to breathe and to pause and consider then what love looks like in that situation and it will give you a chance to talk it out rather than fight it out and work it out rather than push and push and push. But it really does begin with a commitment not to be selfish, not to be self-seeking because love is not self-seeking. But we, we are naturally self-seeking. And this is why Jesus says, I want you to follow me. I don't want you to follow your impulses. I don't want you to follow your appetite. I don't want you to follow the way your mom was or the way your dad was or the way your friends are. That's not the way that I want you to follow. I want you to follow me because as I gave my life for others, I want then for you to look for ways to give your life away. Give it away because you will find that it's just a better way to live, that you were created and de- designed to live in love. You will just be better, and it will feel better, and your life will go better if you can do this. And Jesus would say, my friends, if you find this difficult, which we're going to find it difficult because we are naturally self-seeking, if you find this difficult, here's a very simple, a very simple, very powerful prayer. Jesus, less of me, more of you. In this situation, Jesus, I need less of me and I need more of you. And just crying out in that simple prayer will begin to reorient your heart towards love and less self-seeking. Paul says this, it is not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. Now, it's impossible, I think, to completely avoid anger. But if you are loving the way that God loves you, you're not going to be easily angered. 
The Greek word here for anger is actually a cooking term. It means to stir up. You won't be stirred up. It's not, it's not a phrase that we use very often today, but have you, ever heard some, have you ever heard someone say, you know what, I was so stirred up by what they did, or I was so irritated by, by how he behaved. I was so upset. Have you guys ever been stirred up before? Has anyone ever stirred you up? created a chaos in your heart, a chaos in your soul by what they were doing or how they were behaving. It created a whirlwind of chaos in you. That's really what it means to be angry, Paul would say. But when you decide to love like God through Christ in the way that he has loved you, you will not be easily stirred up. You will not be easily angered because love doesn't get ticked off easily. Love does not irritate quickly. Love can listen. Love absorbs. Love can take it. And sometimes, if you are a person committed to love, my friends, sometimes you just have to take it. Not reflect back whatever is coming at you, but just to take it and absorb it. When you're in a difficult conversation with someone we love, I mean, there are times when we just have to absorb whatever is coming at you. Whatever anger, whatever yelling, whatever is coming at us, we just need to absorb it. Because love does not react. Love is not irritated in the face of anger. Love responds patiently. Because love puts the other person's story ahead of their own story. And isn't it true that when someone is angry or they're saying something that's stirring you up, it really revolves around a story? If you think about it, I think this is true. This is my story. This is the way I see it. This is what I've experienced. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is my story. And in this moment, in, in these moments, love realizes that we have different stories around the same event. And so I'm going to actually listen to your story, and then I'm going to make a deliberate choice to put your version of the story ahead of my own. Because love remembers that everybody, everybody's behavior makes perfectly good sense to them. And that's a challenging word. When your behavior doesn't make sense to you, it's because you don't know something. And when their behavior doesn't make sense to you, it's because you don't know something. You don't know all the details. You don't stand from their point of view watching the same story. So love absorbs and love listens and love prioritizes the other person's story. After all, I think, they may be pushing your buttons. But those are your buttons. Nobody has ever actually made you angry. They merely brought out the anger already inside of you. And if you're easily angered, that is a you issue. That is not a them issue. And as followers of Jesus, we must learn to deal what's inside of us before it comes out of us. To learn to absorb rather than to reflect and to respond in like kind. Paul continues, he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Who? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't have a file drawer. But, but hold on, Ross, come on now. If, if love doesn't have a file drawer, if love keeps no record of wrongs, then, then, then what, what, are you, what are you telling me? That I need to learn to, say it with me, forgive. But d- don't you remember that you did the exact same thing last week? Don't you remember that you did the same thing yesterday? Why can't you ever get your act together? Why can't you ever get it right? Why do you always do the same thing? Don't you remember that I got up 
that I got up with a baby twice last night as you were just lying there pretending to be asleep? Don't you remember that I had to take the trash out last week too? Don't you remember that you're so lazy and you never do anything around the house? Don't you remember what you said two years ago? Don't you remember what you did at Christmas in 1991? And we hold these things over each other. We hold them over each other because if I cannot keep any records of wrong, then I have to learn to forgive people. And if I have to forgive people, then I am giving up my power over them, and I'm giving up my control over them, and I'm giving up my rights over them. And who wants to do that? I would have to actually learn, I think, to treat other people the same way that God has treated me. See, love does not hold past wrongs against people because that is not how God treats us, right? The whole way of living, this whole new way of living in love is all about mimicking how God has treated us and then learning to do the same for other people. And God does not keep record of our wrongs. He, does, he has a file cabinet actually of all of us a mile long, but he never opens up and he never brings it up to us. He never holds it against us. He never holds it over our head. He just doesn't bring it up. He does not hold that file cabinet a mile long that he has over us as an excuse for not loving us. And I know none of this is easy and none of this is natural. natural. It's just better. It's just a better way to live. And I'm working on this individually and I hope that we are working it as a church body. It's just a better way to live. So follow Jesus and over time you'll find that you'll fall into a brand new way of living and a brand new, a brand new way of loving and thinking and living out love in a particular. That you'll begin to forgive people And then you'll simply learn to pretend to forget because this is always the best way to live your life. Forgiving and then pretending to forget is always your best bet. That's always the best bet. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that what they did doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that what they did is okay and that it was appropriate. It doesn't mean that you have to be the victim. And it also doesn't mean that you have to reconcile this relationship. It doesn't mean that you're always going to get along in the future. Forgiveness is an attitude, and it is a decision to give up resentment and an an act of your deliberate will to hand over the justice to God. Forgiveness means you're going to live in the future with hope for the healing of that person rather than in the past and what they have done against you. Forgiveness means that I will treat you in love despite all the wrongs that you have committed against me. Remember, I think that you can be exactly 100% right 100% of the time, but you can end up all alone. Maybe you've been in situations like this, or maybe other people have done this against you. You can be right 100% of the time about what you say, and nobody is going to want to be around you. And you will find that you'll always be alone. And it's not because you're wrong. It's because you're always right and you just couldn't shut the stupid file cabinet. You just couldn't leave the past in the past and you couldn't just leave it all lie back there. You know, you had to keep bringing it up and you had to keep rubbing it in. And you were right to the detail and you dotted every T and you dotted every I and crossed every T and your details were exactly right, but you just could not shut your mouth and keep it locked away in the file cabinet. You had to keep bringing it up and guess what? Nobody wanted to be around you. We can be right, my friends. That's not the issue. We can be right. We can hold those things over people's head and nobody's going to want to be with us. And your Heavenly Father says, there's a better way. I want you to simply forgive them in the same way that I have forgiven you. 
forgive others. That is what I did for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far, I, so far as I removed your transgressions from you. And besides, holding, holding the lack of forgiveness, holding the inability to forgive, holding other people's wrongs over their heads, that is a power play. And whenever someone tries to remind you of your past, whenever someone holds your past over you, who is in the elevated position? They are, but love never steps up. Love always steps down. It never pushes itself up. It always bends low underneath. See, Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. And now he says, follow me. Take this mentality, take this upside-down servant mentality into your marriages, into your relationships with your neighbors, into your relationship with your coworkers, into your relationships. Take this mindset into your relationships, and you will find that there will be peace, not only in that relationship, but peace for your soul. He continues by saying, Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Love does not celebrate the downfall of others or the stumbling of others or rejoice in their wrongs or rejoice when they are punished. Love is merciful. Love celebrates the truth that in the face of all of our sin, God chose to come near to us and to lift us up and set us back upright. See, love celebrates the truth that in the face of our wrongdoing and our stumbling, when we were before executioner, God came and stepped into the gap and he took our place. And if God does not delight in our sin, then we should not delight in the sin of others. If God does not delight in our wrongdoing and our stumbling and our punishment, then we ought not to do the same for others. We ought to live mercifully towards others the same way God has done for us. He says that love always protects when I was seven or eight years old, I remember I was at a Little League baseball game, and uh, I had all my stuff in the backseat. My dad had a big uh, a Camaro, a regular-sized Camaro, I guess, um, but I had two-door Camaro, had big, heavy doors. And so I remember I have all my stuff. I'm trying to, I'm trying to crawl out of this, this, uh, the backseat of this car, and so I take both of my feet, and I push it against the door, and this big, heavy metal door slams into the car next to me, and it leaves this gash in this guy's car. And the worst part of it, he was in the car when it happened. And so this guy, he is just ticked, right? He is just so angry, and he's got fire in his eyes, and he is just spitting words, and he is so angry, and he's yelling, and he just looks at me, and he comes running. He just darts around his car after me, and I'm this little boy looking up at him, and my dad literally steps into the gap. And my dad's face is covered in the spit of this guy's slander and like all the curses that he was spewing at me. And my, my dad just sat there, and he took it for me so that I wouldn't have to. And this is how love protects. It protects. It steps into the gap of our insults and the curses. It protects us as a shield. And, and the reason I would do this is because this is what God and Christ did for us. That he took upon himself our infirmities. He took upon himself our transgressions. He took upon himself our iniquities. He took the insults and the abuse and the crown of thorns, and the nails, and the slander for us. He stepped into the gap, and he protected us. He took upon the death that was rightfully ours, because that is what love does. Next he says, love always trusts. Or another way of saying this is, love always believes the best about people. Love doesn't assume the worst about other people's intentions. Rather, love puts a generous assumption into the gap of our lack of knowledge. Whenever we see something happening and we make assumptions about it, love will always put a generous assumption into that gap. 
and it'll think about the, it'll think the best of people, and it'll trust the best in people. He says, love always hopes. Love always desires a better tomorrow. It always desires progress and blessing for the person next to us. Love always perseveres. It doesn't give up when things are hard. It doesn't quit. It persists. And it not only endures, but, but it chooses to learn and to grow in the face of obstacles that it faces. And so here it is. Here's what Paul says love is. Again, these are the specific things that the Corinthians were probably dealing with, and this is why he chose to include these instead of a number of other things he could have included. But love is patient, kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love does not dishonor others, it is not selfish, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, it always perseveres. And so, take a little personal inventory for a second. If you look at this list, you're thinking on my best days... B minus, B minus, C plus, B minus maybe, right? On your best days, where do you fall on this? Like, where are your sticky points? What do you struggle with? Where are the things that you need to ask God to help you surrender and to commit to him? And then let's take a relational inventory. Aren't these the qualities that you're actually longing for in all of your relationships? If you were to think about it, aren't these the things that you want to see in your relationships? Isn't this what you're hoping for and looking for? And if this is what you expect and hope for and long for in your relationships, and this is how you want others to treat you, then start behaving this way towards other people. If this is what you expect and you want and you long for and other people to interact with you, then my friends, we must then do the same to them. And if that's what you want, but you don't think that you can be that way towards others, then understand the beauty of following Jesus. Because if there's ever a time where you thought, Jesus, where are we going? If I choose to follow you, Jesus, what are we going to do? What is my life going to look like? Where are we going, Jesus? Jesus will always say, this is where we're going. This is it. If you follow me, this is what your life is going to become like. If you follow me, this is who you're going to become. And you're thinking, Jesus, yes, but I, I don't think I can do that. Every day, of my life that I commit and I surrender, the more and more you say, I'm going to step deeper into love, and not just any love, the love that God has for me. But Jesus, I just, I wonder if I can actually accomplish that. You need to remember then, this is so powerful, that he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you, not, I'm going to do the good work in me. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to conjure up the strength within me. No, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. Your job, my friends, is not to try harder. Your job is to surrender. Your job is to ask. And your job is to be willing. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Ross, this is really good. I, I like this a lot. This is challenging, convicting, hopefully. Certainly, as I've studied love over the last several weeks, it has been very, very challenging to me, very convicting to me. But am I just supposed to be somebody's punching bag? If I'm to really to be the person bent on love, am I just to be a punching bag? I mean, what's that going to do to my soul if I just keep absorbing everybody's anger? Am I just to be walked over and if I never remember what they've done to me, are they just going to keep on doing it? And if I'm always stepping into the gap and being their protector, then, then are they ever going to learn for themselves? And I believe the best about them for 10 years, and I'm constantly being lied to. And so, 
And so when does it stop? I mean, where is the self-love in all this? Where is the self-care in all of this? And is there no discipline? Are there no consequences for being in relationship when, when somebody chooses to hurt me? Are there no consequences for that? Are we just supposed to love unconditionally all the time, which means that we get walked over half of the time? And the simple answer to that question, or many of those questions, is yes. But I want to qualify it for you this morning. Still taking our cues from how God interacts with us, how God treats us, we must understand at least two things about how relationships work. First, you need to know that you are only one of the persons in every relationship you have. I mean, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? Come on, that, that's, like, that's mind-blowing, right, guys? I say that tongue-in-cheek. You should know this. You are only one of the persons in every relationship you have. This is necessary to understand that you can control only one person in every relationship, and it's not the person next to you. You can control one person in every interaction, and that is you. We all know this, but so many of our relationship problems come from our attempts at controlling other people rather than controlling ourselves. All I can do is ask, what does love require me in this situation with what I'm confronted right now, whether it be a toddler in the midst of her discovering her independence, whether it be a sassy six-year-old, whether it be an overly energized eight-year-old, whether it be a preteen hormonal boy in the household, whether it be an exhausted wife or an overworked husband or a nosy neighbor or a pompous boss or a lazy coworker, or a generous friend, a loving teacher, a kind stranger, and everybody else, what does love require of me in light of this person's interaction towards me. It requires my patience, my kindness, my willingness to absorb and not take offense, my forgiveness, my belief in them, my hope for them. What love requires of me is not to control them. But one thing that we rarely talk about concerning relationships, and one thing our society wants to dismiss more and more and more regarding relationships, is that every single relationship that we all have exists within a playing field. Every relationship has boundaries and relational parameters. Now, not many relationships have formal or stated boundaries, but every relationship exists within a a parameter. It essentially exists within a, a box. There are certain actions and behaviors that are outside of right relationships. There just are. There are certain activities, certain behaviors that are outside the realm of right relationship. The Bible defines this principle as a covenant. Now, a covenant is simply an agreement made between two parties regarding the parameters of the relationship. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, you'll have seen one of the only uh, formal covenants that are left within our society. Two people stood in front of each other, and they made promises. They said, these are our relational parameters. Here's what it means to be in relationship with you. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to now, from the rest of my life, I'm choosing. I'm making a deliberate choice to live within the parameters, to live within the box that we have established together by our promises. Every single relationship has these promises, though, in theory. Now, we never go to our neighbor with a list of all of the rules for what it means to be in relationship with each other. We never go to them with a list of all of the promises to say, you know what? You offended rule 605 when you started throwing your trash in my backyard, right? We don't have that list. All of you you know, girlfriends, you know, you went out one day, you have this group of girlfriends that you like, and it's like you hang out with, and they're your close friends, and you go out for fondue, and you make your list of, all. here's what it means to be in a relationship with each other. You know, we're going to call each other three times a week. We're going to check in on Facebook with each other. We're going to be praying for each other. Like, you never did that. Did anybody ever do that? 
We never did that. But if your friend started gossiping about you and slandering your name, wouldn't that be stepping outside of those relational parameters? Every relationship has parameters for what it means to be in relationship with other people. When the Bible speaks of God's relationship to us, it speaks of his hesed, literally his covenant love that he has for us. And it should be no surprise then after the series that our relationship parameters with God is love. It's his love for us, and it's the way then we are to live with other people. Love makes up the boundary for what it means to be in relationship with God, and therefore ought to make up the boundary for being in relationship with others, because we are made in his image, made to relate rightly to others like he relates to us. And when then in our selfish pursuit we step outside of this boundary, that is when we sin. We reject relationship with God, we reject relationship with others in pursuit of ourselves, and we abandon God's law, and we step away then from our humanity. And of course, when you're outside of relationship with God, and you're outside of right relationship with others, that is where you hurt, and that is where you hurt others, because sin always comes prepackaged with a consequence. Sin is death, and so here is where we hurt when we're outside of relationship parameters, and here is where we hurt others. So the question we must ask is, what then does love require of me? When the person I'm in relationship steps outside of the relationship parameters, should I just absorb their anger and be their punching bag and be abused? Should I just keep believing in them even if the evidence tells me that they're having an affair? And so here's what we learned, that love is the fullness of both truth and grace. And whenever you have one without the other, or whenever you have one in part or the other in full, it's not love. Love is the fullness of both truth and grace. Truth calls out the sin. Truth calls out the hurt. Truth speaks clearly about the consequences of sin, and truth illustrates the consequences that come prepackaged with sin. See, we put our kids in timeout. We take away the car keys, right? You've made choices, and you've stepped over that line, and you have hurt people, and now you are responsible for your decisions. There are consequences which come with breaking covenants, with breaking the parameters. But truth comes clean about which side of the line it is standing on, and it speaks honestly about which side of the line someone else is standing on. And it speaks honestly about how that separation is hurting the relationship. See, truth stands courageously, and truth speaks boldly. But without grace, truth by itself is condemnation. Without grace, truth by itself is condemnation. And grace is an open door. Grace is an invitation back into relationship. Grace is the father welcoming the prodigal son home, but not only welcoming him home, but clothing him in his finest robe and throwing a party for him. Truth is forgiveness and an opportunity at new life. But without truth, grace by itself is enablement. And love demands that we have both in full measure. Jesus is the embodiment of both grace and truth. He called sin, sin. He called sinners, sinners. And then he went and died for their sin. And if we are to live rightly following his example, my friends, we must then be the embodiment of both grace and truth. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to sing one final song as we reflect on this and close out our series together. My friends, I, I, I want to pray for your relationships. I want to take a moment and just kind of pray over this congregation and pray for our relationships. I pray that you can grasp this simple yet impossible principle that we ought to love one another the same way that God 
through Jesus has loved us. And I pray that you would embody then this truth and embody this grace. I pray that you embody this truth that will stand up and speak when someone, in your, someone you're in relationship with steps outside of love towards you. Courageously speak up, in love speak up, that they have stepped outside of what it means to be in relationship with you. But then by your grace given, because God has extended grace to us, welcome them back into relationship. And I pray that you will embody the same grace and the same truth that God had showed us, that we are sinners met by his incredible grace. And I pray then that this will help establish perfect relationships in your life. Paul concluded this whole section on love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, in the end, all the brokenness, all the chaos, all the, all the shattered relationships, all these are going to fade away, but there are three things that will remain. There are three things that are going to persist forever. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest, he says, is and always will be love. Heavenly Father, I pray over this congregation. I pray over this people. I pray that we would be a people first and foremost, Father, who desire to enter into our humanity, who desire to honor you through our love that we have for you and that we will listen to your calling on our life, Father, and that we'll step in, Father, and say, God, do in me what you will because this is how I was created and this is how you designed me, God. I want to be in relationship with you because this is where life is found. And this is where peace is found for my soul. When I'm far from you, God, I hurt. And when I'm far from you, I hurt others. And so I'm drawing near to you, God. Your invitation, your open door is here. By your grace, you have opened it, Father, and I thank you for it. And so, God, as I enter through it, speak the truth over me. I am a sinner, Father, and yet you love me. I am guilty, and yet I do not stand condemned. Because your love for me has overwhelmed me, Father, you have invited me home. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this. Now, Father, I ask that my life might be a great testimony to you as towards yours. I, I pray that my life would be a mimicry of yours. I want others to see your love through the way that I love them. Father, do this in me because I'm not sure I have the strength to do it myself. Complete the work that you have begun in me, Father. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Complete the work in me that you have begun. I pray for my neighbor and for my spouse and for my children and for my coworkers and the random people I interact with, Father. Give me eyes to see. Give me wisdom and give me courage, Father, that I may venture into exploring what love requires me at all times. May that be the question always upon my mind, Father. What would it look like to love this person as you have loved me? And then, Father, give me the courage to do it. Because it's easy to, to meditate on it. It's easy to, to hypothesize and philosophize about what it might look like, Father. But if I am not actually doing it, give me the courage to do it. To lend a hand. To give sacrificially. To bend low. To serve. To speak a kind word. God, give me the courage to actually do it. And may... Perhaps, Father, this whole region then come to know of your great love because of the way that we love others. Maybe so. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen.